0: Everyone, Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Daniel Simon, author of The Money Hackers. Now, if any of you have followed Brad's tweets, you would probably have seen a Twitter thread that came along with the book. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and being with us today, Daniel.
1: Thank you for having me. Still delighted to be here.
0: It's early morning uh, for some of us as well. Um, let's start first with a little bit about your background and why were you compelled to write this book and let's say not a chemistry book
2: um
1: so my background is i've been on wall street for about 20 years um as you can tell from my thick bronx accent i'm not from around here originally but i am an american just albeit one with a a funny accent at this point i've spent more time in the states than anywhere else kind of fell into finance by accident i'm actually an english and french literature major, I'm not a, uh, a finance guy, although I've spent most of my career surrounded by finance guys, guys in particular, um, which is which is just one of the many problems. Um, and, uh, and so I had this sort of front row seat to Wall Street in the lead up to 08 and then on the other side of 08. And Uh, One of the peculiar areas that I was sort of I found fascinating before 2008 was what we used to call financial technology. We call it FinTech now. um, But before then, there wasn't before there wasn't a hashtag uh, FinTech. It was just financial technology. Most of it was on the capital markets side of a bank. and and that's the still that was the part of the business that most people would run far away from people no one would find particularly pr and marketing people communications people like myself no one was very interested in low latency and algorithmic trading but i found it really interesting and so i sort of was able to carve out a pretty good um niche for myself there and that kind of evolved into what we understand as fintech today Um, And so I I really got to see how technology transforms industries and in particular, the the way that we interact with money. And and that sort of led me to come up with the idea for the book.
2: I mean, one of the things that I really liked when I was reading is just that, that you're telling the story about FinTech and sort of the rise of FinTech through other people through their stories and what their, you know, their backgrounds were and kind of why they got into what they were doing. And so you, you say that a group of misfits took on Wall Street and changed finance forever. But you go really much broader than Wall Street, of course. So yeah. so so tell me, you know, how did you decide who to interview? Like, who are these misfits? And, you know, just, what did what did you write what you did?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I knew some of these people already, and I use the word misfit. Misfits are really good, word, even if I do say so myself, because whether by virtue of their gender or the color of their skin or mostly because of their backgrounds, which were not financial Right, the, the thing about financial services is that. Um, well, it was always kind of a family business. There's a lot of names, um, JP Morgan and others as uh, a, a pinned to banks, and it's also something that um, you know, people tended to grow up in. You were a financial advisor and then you became the head of the firm, you know, and you were in it. it it's not an industry typically that people from outside come in and try and do something. And, but, but this group of people, and in fact, the fintech industry as a whole has largely been led by people who have no prior background in financial services. So they're misfits by virtue of the fact that they were consultants or technologists or just kids graduating uh, from college. And I think, you know, I was drawn to many of these people because I'm a misfit myself. You know, I'm an, I'm a Brit who lives in America. I'm a French literature major who was going to go in and be an academic in, um, in, in literature who ended up working on uh, wall street uh, for these sort of uh, you know, seriously big uh, bulge bracket kind of uh, banks. Uh, with all these kind of hardcore tradery kind of people so I've never really felt like I fit in anywhere um, and uh, and so i i'm I've always been drawn to people who don't feel like they fit in anywhere and so uh, many of these people were were known to me or or I, I knew directly and then as I got talking to them they would introduce me to others um. Uh, who I found to be equally strange and weird in a good way. So these are sort of successful entrepreneurs who, in some cases, have built billion dollar businesses, but who, um, you know, were not your father's or mother's, you know, stockbroker.
0: I almost feel compelled. Why didn't we um, call the book um, The Family of Misfits? Maybe that's what we're going to call the episode. Um, what are some of the interesting stories that you heard, uh, like common themes that surprised you? Uh,
1: well, I can tell you about the stories and I can tell you about the themes because they're sort of two separate. They're two. Th- those are two separate big chunks of discussion. So some of the stories, let me tell you about some of the stories that really illustrate the misfit quality of these people. Right. So take someone like Ishmael Ahmed. Um, He is the chairman and founder of something called World Remit, which is a remittance company. We don't talk much about remittances in the States because we're a really big country. But there's a lot of people who work in this country who are immigrants like I was um, who uh, for whom remittances, the business of sending money across borders is really, really important. And if you go to other places around the world, it's even more important. There are entire the state, the Indian state of Kerala gets about <clears> twenty <throat> something percent of its GDP from from remittances. Um, so this guy Ishmael Ahmed uh, grew up uh, in Somalia. He was caught up in the Somali civil war. His family were on the wrong side of what today we would call ethnic cleansing. Um, he escaped. Uh, uh, Hargeisa, which was the, the capital that was under bombardment, in the wheelbase of a truck, uh, made his way to Addis Ababa, where his brother sent him some money. And that was his first experience of getting remittances. Um, uh, he actually had a scholarship to study uh, at the University of London. So he went to the University of London, managed to make it there. And uh, once he found out that his family was still alive, he worked two or three jobs, picked strawberries, worked late nights to be able to send money home. And that was really where he first experienced the friction, what we would call friction today, and the cost of traditional remittance providers like uh, Western Union, right? And uh, and so he decided, hey, I'm going to dedicate my life to fixing this problem, uh, which he did, uh, and uh, uh, went on to sort of uh, study this at the London School of Economics and uh, rose to become the head of remittances for the united nations development program and that would be where the story what would be where the story ends that would be where the movie ends if it weren't extra specially weird that while at the united nations he uncovered this Um, financial scandal became a whistleblower against the United Nations, was blacklisted from the industry, sued the United Nations in the international courts, uh, and won. And with the money that he got from that, he started World Remit, which is dramatically lowering the costs of remittances. So um, I already have the movie mapped out in my brain. Uh, uh, Jaden Smith is going to play him you know, as the young guy getting out of uh, out of Addis Ababa, and um, uh, you know maybe will will his dad will play him older because it's a bit like Hotel Rwanda meets uh, you know pursuit of happiness. So you know that's just one of the many people. And Bradley, you pointed out that we start with the people's stories, not the technology. As I said in my author's note, you know, come for the innovators, stay for the innovation. I make no bones about the fact that, you know, I'm a huge fan of Michael Lewis. Of course I am. We all are. This is what we do for a living. We're financial storytellers. So, you know, what Lewis does so well, particularly in the big short, is he takes something incredibly complicated, mortgage backed securities and securitization, and he explains it to people through individual stories the stories of the people who saw this coming and and i shamelessly ripped off that idea um and i'm proud to admit it that if you want to get people to understand remittances or payment gateways uh, or peer-to-peer lending you need to look at the individuals who brought you that and it just so happens that the people behind this are kind of fascinating and funky another example would be a guy like steve street who created green dot you know, as I said before, these people aren't out of traditional finance. Steve's first claim to fame was an, as an a and guy. He created the category that we now know of as soft rock. Uh, so when he was working at Sony, they were like, what is this music? It's not pop, but it's not hard rock. And he was like, let's call it soft rock and a thousand soft rock radio stations were born, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you whether you thank him or, or hate him for it. Uh, so he made his money in, in the music industry. And what he decided to do was credit cards for kids. He had this, he had this great idea. We're gonna have, we're gonna have prepaid credit cards for teenagers. Uh, he saw the rise of online commerce, and he realized that kids were gonna need a way to get online and pay for things. Um, uh, and it bombed. It was a terrible idea uh so he he had all these credit cards printed up he spent all of his money that he made from the music industry on credit cards for kids and he would put them in in 7-11s and and no one bought them uh <clears throat> and eventually they started to sell very slowly but he had no idea who was buying his credit cards so he used to go and stalk CVSs and 7-11s in downtown um LA and what he realized uh, was that the people who were buying his credit cards were not um, Rad 18 year olds or sixteen-year-old skateboarders. They were fifty-five-year-old uh, African-American gentlemen and you know middle-aged Hispanic laborers. And what he realized, what he what he unwittingly uncovered, was the vast underbanked or unbanked part of our society. There's twenty million Americans who are completely unbanked. That's six percent of our populace. And there's another twenty million, another six percent who are underbanked. Who, who, who barely have any touch points with the traditional financial services industry. And these people work in the cash economy. So he's standing there and he's watching and he realizes that he needs to pivot the business. That alone is an idea that's completely alien, a misfit idea to the financial industry. One thing banks do not do or have not traditionally done is pivot. It's a very technology, very West Coast idea pivoting. So he pivots and he creates he goes on to create Green Dot, which is the largest bank serving the underbanked and unbanked community in the United States. It's also one of the only fintechs to get its own real banking license. So, um, you know, just a couple of people who are, you know, do not have that traditional trajectory of a banker and pretty much the book is kind of loaded with people like this. Renaud Laplanche, who created Lending Club, said he was a misfit twice over. One, once because he was a technologist and second because he was French. Uh, so he said, you know, when he got his credit card statement from the American banks, his sort of his French sense of equality was kind of was, was threatened and, and upset because they were charging. It was just unfair. That they were charging so much interest. And that sense of being an outsider and not understanding is what led him to realize well, banks are charging so much interest to lend to us because they have these infrastructure costs. And if you could strip out the infrastructure costs, you could lower the rate. He couldn't have come up with that as an insider or even as an American because credit card rates are credit card rates. We just, that's the way we think about them. You have to be an outsider, you have to be a misfit to look at that and be like, that's not right, that's not fair. Um, And so, you know, again, more examples, all these people are, are outsiders in their own way.
2: One of the things that that kind of struck me is, you know, there, there's so many of um, people that have either I've interviewed on stage, like John Stein, better mentioned here, or folks that um, have, you know, we've interacted for years, like Bill Reddy who, who founded Venmo and um, Braintree, and sure. you know, I see in here like you know, Catherine Petrella from Cabbage and others. There's there's fewer women, which you know isn't too surprising given that the beginning of this, especially ten years ago, there were fewer female entrepreneurs um you've got a few in here um you know you you talk about you know sort of the rise of um blockchain industry ledger and you you have conversations when you think about the guests and you think about you know the representation that we have was there anything that you know you were looking for to tell the story of that you didn't find you know whether it was a mix of genders or a mix of people that were from outside the us or how did you decide in the end how you were going to tell the story of how money itself was being transformed.
1: Sure. Well, I'll address the gender thing directly, because it was super important for me to try and get some gender balance in this. So, yes, Catherine is one, Sukinda Singh, <clears throat> Cassidy from Yodli, Blythe Masters um, from Digital Asset. Uh, As I say in my author's note, if your favorite female CEO is not in here, it may not be a snub. It may just be that I'm waiting for them to call me back. So Sally Krawcheck goes into that bucket, um, you know, as do a few other women who I would be delighted to. You know, I, I think, you know, honestly, I think John Stein has more of a claim to the. know robo advisory mantle but um in an effort to make it balanced and to get her perspective particularly on gender and i was hope you know i would have taken sally and done a chat and built a chapter around her because i would have talked about how you know we you know how finance is starting to look more like the people that it serves which i think is a sort of an important facet of of fintech um you know, I, I I tried to include as many women as I could, and I tried to include people of color um, uh, where I could. Um, and I actually think the book comes out pretty balanced uh, because I was trying thematically to show that the fintech has evolved relative to your traditional bulge bracket. Bank, when you look at this cast of characters, you know, whether it's Ishmael, whether it's Ken Lynn from Credit Karma, whether it's... Um, Omer Ishmael from Goldman Sachs, well, uh, Marcus, you know, you start to get a picture of just a a greater diversification. I think there were other things that we just couldn't get to. We just couldn't get to. And you're right to point out the regional thing. You know, I tried to go down the neobank road of kind of – uh, you know, Revolut and Monzo and Starling Bank. Not least, Starling Bank has a female CEO. That's another one uh, where I'm still on. I'm still just waiting for them to give me a call back. Um, uh, but but really, this had to have quite a US bent to it. Um, you know, Ishmael and World Remit is in, is in the UK and a, a couple of people are in the UK. But but if I'm being absolutely transparent, it is not the story of global fintech. Because if you were telling the story of global fintech, you talk about WeChat. Um, you know, uh, you would talk about China in 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 for many more chapters than I cover in this book. You talk about Europe. You talk about the differences from a regulatory landscape of the ease of creating neo banks and challenger banks across the landscape relative to the U.S. So. You know, this is about 80, 20 to sort of the US, UK or US rest of world, I should say. The other thing that, you know, we just didn't get to. And there's some big glaring pieces. Right. You know, um, which is kind of maybe book two, um, if if they'll have me and I have it in me, um, would be things like commercial fintech. Right. Which I think is like a huge you know, square and stripe. Right? we just don't talk about it in the book we just we don't but my god you know that commerce element of fintech is so important and the other the other things would be the other two the two areas that i would say is insurance and insurtech we couldn't get to i think mean, there's enormously in, in, important things happening in insurance and i think in many ways the story of you know fintech as in lending savings remittances payments is largely told, but insurance is just at the it's so complicated. That it's just at the start of its journey for technology. And there's so many interesting things happening in insurance and the way technology is going to transform it, not just, you know, you know, wiring technology, but things like genetics and, uh, you know, people understanding their own genetics and what that does for life insurance. I mean, so many things that insurance is going to change. And then the third is real estate, um, which we also didn't get to. <laughs> Um, uh, And real estate is the world's largest asset class, and it's the most complicated. And so it's really, really just in its nascency from a from a tech um, transformation perspective. And we touch on it a little bit. We talk about figure and some other places where, you know, there's, you know, home equity loans are using blockchain and others to kind of revolutionize the way that they do that. But really just skimming the surface of those Of those areas. Uh, uh, The way that we approached it was to look at the things that a bank has typically bundled, right? You know, we'll take your money and we'll look after it. We'll let you get your money out. We'll let you share your money with other people. We'll let you send your money across borders. We'll lend your money out to other people and give you interest on it. We'll let you borrow money from the bank. Um, We'll let you save and we'll let you invest in you know equities or other instruments uh you know in the future right so um those are the areas sort of lending payments remittances savings investments and and the original idea was to take each chapter take each piece of a bank put it into a chapter and find one person who represented that space which of course was incredibly naive because there's not one person who represents a space, can you talk about robo investing without talking about, you know, the growth of ETFs without talking about indexing, without talking about passive, without talking about John Bogle? No, you can't. And then you go to peer to peer lending um, with someone like Renault Laplanche, who's fascinating. And he says, well, what are you doing about small business lending? Because Cabbage and On Deck and these guys like Catherine Petrolia have done so much to revolutionize. Small business lending. So before you know it, you're kind of like, oh, my God, this thing gets I ended up doing over one hundred and fifty interviews with people. Um, and each chapter has multiple stories. Uh, the way that we kind of circumnavigated that without turning this thing into the encyclopedia of was to create little sidebars. So we did so that the story had big chapters So we sort of picked our sort of um a-list players someone like renault and his story of getting fired from the company that he founded sort of steve Jobs style you know one weekend larry mack and um sorry john mack and and um uh, summers pull him in and uh, uh, you know and summarily kind of fire him from the company that he founded um uh, and then to have these little sidebars with people like Catherine. Where it's just a few hundred words about how fascinating these individuals are. I mean, there's literally too many misfits to fit in this book.
0: I, I think that's what's always fascinating about this ecosystem, right? It's the more you dig, the more interesting people that you find. it's It's just like us doing the podcast every single time we talk to someone and we think about 10 other ones that we want to include in the show. Um, and, and things keep evolving, right? Just like you're saying, there are all kinds of facets of, of FinTech development in different regions, for example. Um, uh, Ants is, is filing for IPO, right? So that in itself was a fascinating story about how they evolved and how they came about and what they have done to propel the small businesses. Um, so we look forward to the second- Oops. Did you say Ant? yeah and yeah
1: and financial yeah i mean yeah, group, yeah. And, and by the way you know while we're talking about that you know let's talk about big tech because you know if you look at the decision over the last few weeks by google to add more and more banks to its payment platform by apple to just consolidate all of its financial um touch points under a single offering It's very, very clear that the fintechs, as we understand it, that I describe in this book, are really the the sort of the amuse bush before the main course or even before the starter of of the entree into uh, into finance by these very, very large tech firms. Right. The fangs, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, really, it's 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 these guys are going to go full bore into into finance i do it's the last chapter of the book um in terms of your point about things evolving you know i put had to put the there comes a point when you write a book where you have to stop and that's really hard because you know you the publisher's saying have you got the manuscript for me and you're watching the news and it says you know i don't know it says charles schwab goes to zero dollar trading you, that you was see the one. Mean?
0: Yeah, that was a big one. Well, you know, you can always build it up like an encyclopedia, right? This is uh, volume one, and then there's
1: volume two, three. I could if, or... I've, got, if, as I said, <laughs> if I've got it in me. I can uh, if I can if I can bring myself to do it.
0: I'm sure the second one is going to come easier. But I'm curious, though, right? You know, as you look back in, in your experience in Wall Street and as you talk to the different people um, in the different chapters and spaces and what have you um and and given where we are right now right with the economy um with with how things seems to be evolving and changing by the day I can't even keep track anymore um how do you think influx of new business models and new ideas and and all of those actually is going to help people out in the end
1: well I I think in terms of the (laughs) In, in terms of the story of fintech, it's it's really like it's so much about what's going on today, a tale of two cities. So there is a crisis in this country. It's a it's a, it's a health crisis and it's perpetuating a a wealth crisis. Uh, we have. And so, you know, the, the sort of the hidden disparities in this country and, and in fact across the OECD, but especially acute in this country, which I should Say I love. Um, we, you know, we are exposing what has always been there, which is enormous inequalities, and so, you know, I think the story of fintech. If just cast your mind back for a second, okay, two thousand twelve, let's say two thousand thirteen. The the reason the fintech accelerated with the speed that it did was because of the disparity between our consumer experience everywhere else and in finance. So by 2013, I was texting for my prescriptions. Netflix was offering me, you know, original content based on what I liked. I found Spotify, which meant I could abandon Apple's idea of buying songs. And now I had sound as a service. Okay, everything was incredibly seamless. I don't know what version iPhone we were on by 2012, 2013, but it was great. And and it was magic, it was a magical time. And then you would come to a screeching halt the minute you hit financial services, right? We're talking about checkbooks, we're talking about showing up to branches. I mean, that friction was just absolutely done. So when I say the story of FinTech is told, all I mean is that for the moment that there is no longer a great disparity between our consumer experience inside finance than from any other point. Right. Hospitality, healthcare, And I've been making this point for a long time. We used to look at industry verticals. And judge them on their own merits. We would say, "Oh, that wasn't bad for a medical experience. or and, and we also didn't look to be delighted and excited anywhere except maybe hospitality, entertainment, dining, that sort of stuff. But today we look for delight and surprise and excitement and ease everywhere. And I would argue that for the most part, for most of us, urban, elite, you know one percenters, white collar, um, you know relatively affluent people, That experience is, you know, relatively on par with the other experiences we have, you know, like, you know, Amazon drones the sushi into my mouth. And, you know, I send you money via Venmo or Zelle or whatever it is. It's it's a relatively seamless experience. But that masks the reality for the vast majority of people in this country. So before this crisis, before coronavirus, 50 percent of Americans didn't have five hundred dollars in emergency savings. They could not withstand that kind of a shock, right? As I said earlier, 20 million Americans, 20 million Americans are completely unbanked in the cash economy entirely. Which by the way, when, when something weird like our current currency crisis where we don't actually have coins happens, it really impacts 20 million people. More people have cell phones in this country than have bank accounts. Think about that. And another twenty million are unbanked. That means they're not really experiencing banking in the way that I would argue most of the listeners to this podcast will. We the the platform economy. If you look at what happened last week with the decision in California around ride hailing and Uber and Lyft, you guys are there, so you should probably you'll know all about this. Uh, but we are forcing enormous income volatility onto the vast majority of Americans, whether it's by you know, being an Amazon driver or being hired for an Amazon warehouse gig or working a shift uh, at somewhere like a Starbucks or, uh, you know, or a McDonald's or whether you're part of this platform economy like TaskRabbit or um, uh, Uber or Lyft, uh, you know, the lie that is being perpetuated is that these, these people want Uh, value, uh, uh, flexibility over security, and it is a vast conspiracy. Um, uh, And what it has done is it has created, um, as I said, enormous income uh, volatility, enormous fragility in people's financial situation. And then, of course, wages have stagnated for 20 years while assets have gone insane. Uh, gangbusters, as proved by the most insane disconnect between the stock market and the quote-unquote real economy, you know, which we can argue the toss over how how real that is. But for the vast majority of Americans, they are not participating in that asset growth. Um, And so fintech has another journey, another story to tell to solve the problems for the majority of those people. Right. And that is about in a world of income volatility. How do we get people paid for us? How do we get them paid in real time? How do we extend credit to people? Because, you know, responsibly and sensibly based on other factors than their ability to um, or their, their prior uh, repayment history, because if you are forcing income volatility, the vast majority of Americans use credit differently than we affluent middle class upper middle class people, white collar people do. We use credit to finance big things that we can't bite off all in one go, like a house or a boat or a widescreen TV or a car. The vast majority of Americans use credit to smooth over the peaks and troughs of the income volatility that we are forcing on them. So we have to figure out a way to extend credit to more people more responsibly. We have to get people paid on time. We need to look into things like fractional share ownership so that people can start um actually uh, participating in this asset growth so told from one perspective if you are someone like me the story of fintech is as i said it's not done because the next war is going to be fought by the big technology providers but it, there's not the friction that there was 10 years ago or eight years ago between finance and other industries but for the vast majority of americans we haven't scratched this. We haven't, they haven't got bank accounts. We haven't scratched the surface of what's possible. Um, and, and the way that technology can solve some of those problems.
2: Yeah, Yeah, so so we're talking to Daniel Simon Uh, Daniel P Simon is the website, or you could just go to Amazon to find the money hackers. One of the things I want to end with here is just this idea that um, financial technology is a story that you could ever really tell. Uh, You talk a lot about the sort of rise of cryptocurrency, you talk about Charlie Schramm, you talk about the creation of Bitcoin and later Ethereum. And you talk to Blythe Masters and you talk about the creation of Libra. You know, being being early in the space and investing in something there in Ripple and in Blythe's company as well, digital asset holdings. um, It's interesting to see what happened to sort of the rise of cryptocurrency blockchain and distributed ledger technology within financial services. That alone is a story that we could talk about for another half an hour, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I encourage people to read the book because I think that your, your take on it is really interesting and your take on sort of where things are going uh, told through the story of people that are changing. Wall Street and impacting Main Street, I think is incredibly important. So let me let me finalize you know the 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 podcast with this. you You touched on the people that you wanted to talk to in this book. if If you were to go and take that next part of the story, whether it's talking to people or telling the story, what do you want to write about next? How do you continue this thread and take it to what's next? Um, let's wrap with that.
1: Sure. I mean, if there were a second book, we would have to start with China. We have to start by looking at what the mega apps look like, because I think we have gone through a decade or more of unbundling. And, and the bank is the ultimate bundler. The bank is the branch and it sends everything into one place. Right. And and what the iPhone and the app store did in '08 was atomized that it blew that apart. Uh, driven in part by West Coast mentality, venture mentality of do one thing really, really well. And that's what we ended up with. We ended up with a bunch of apps, a bunch of financial services providers that did one thing really well. But if you look at China, um, you know, they didn't take that approach. And consequently, they have these mega apps, the WeChat of the world that are peer to peer, um money transfer platforms and social media platforms and ride hailing platforms and task rabbits and and, and 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 i think that that isn't just a a cultural peculiarity i think that ultimately people want that convenience and so i think the next period will be defined by rebundling and you're already seeing it you're already seeing it you're already seeing you know robinhood trying to get into checking and and others trying to get into checking and this crisis that we're in right now will precipitate that because you cannot grow a market share by just doing one thing you're basically going to have to rebuild as a bank and the the people that have our attention all the time the googles and the amazons and the facebook's have realized that you know they are sitting on the most valuable asset known to man which is human attention uh and so if if anyone is going to rebundle effectively they say well it might as well be us And so that's why I would start book two with China, is because it's where I left off, book one, and it's also you know where we can look a little bit to the future of what mega apps are going to look like in in a rebuilt financial industry as a single offering. Then I would talk about the big, the big techs. Right now, we're in the middle of it. Right now, they're making, they're lining up their pieces on the board you know and and they're getting ready it's interesting right the the the, the, the they don't need to make money in financial services uh, this could be a flywheel for them this could be a separate thing they want the data you know they have our search history and they have which ads we click on and that's great data but you know what's the best data is what we spend money on right and i always say don't tell me what you believe tell me what you spend on right because that is the truest you know, the truest way to know you. And now we're into some really kind of um, uh, Westworld level. So, you know, knowing, sorry, maybe you can bleep that out. But um, uh, but but really knowing us down to our bone, down to our marrow is where is, is our transaction data. And it's interesting that the banks have the data, but they don't have our attention. The uh, big tech companies have our attention, but they don't have that data. And so there's a... War coming and I would definitely want to cover that and as I said, you know, I look to your point about Bitcoin and blockchain I don't think it's a, you know, will it won't it. It's just a win Conversation, you know, it's the same as the internet in 1997, you know, people were not wrong to say Ubiquity first revenue later, you know, we'll reach massive scale will transform, you know, will transform every business the internet uh, and 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 yet we still had a bust in 2000. It took longer than people anticipated. I think you probably guys know the Gartner hype cycle—the you know peak of inflated expectation, the trough of disillusionment, and then the, the the slope of kind of normalization. Well, you know that's what the internet did. It took twenty years, but look how transformational it has been. And I think we have to revisit. Bitcoin and distributed ledger and blockchain and Ethereum and Ripple and all these things to, to sort of catch up to how real it's becoming. Um, and then finally, the things, as I said, that I would love to talk about are things like insurance and real estate, because I think these are the last mile problems, you know, that they, they have been slower to solve, you know, to solve because they're more complicated. You know, selling and buying a house is really, really complicated. But in many ways, I look at, you know, that the same way I look at fintech, which is like people aren't interested in money. They're interested in a better life. They're not interested in investing for the, you know, most most normal, non weird people um, like me. Uh, not, Not strange, you know, geeks like me who nerd out about this stuff. But most normal people don't want to think about investing. They want a comfortable future. And they want a good life for their kids. And it's the same with mortgages. They're not really interested in mortgages. They want a home. They want a house. They want to furnish. They want to. They're excited about the size of the yard and what they can do with it and how their kids can play in it. You know, the mortgage is a means to an end. Um, and and so that's the there's always the human piece that I'm fascinated by. Um, and and I think that's why I would look at the same, the same argument could be made for insurance. It's not really about you know, the the, the complexities of uh, uh, insurance. It's really about making sure you're safe, making sure your family's looked after or your business is, is looked after. So that, that those would be the areas that I would... Pretty sure I just sketched out book two for you guys, actually. I'm, I'll get on the phone with the publisher because it actually sounds pretty good.
0: Actually, what I would say is... Um, it- uh, in, in the very beginning, when you are talking about China and Super I would urge you to also take a look at what's going on in Southeast Asia and India as well. Um, oh, yeah. That I is mean, a good threat.
1: People don't realize that ASEAN has a billion people, right? The the non-China part of APAC.
0: Yeah. You know. It's a lot of people. And also, if you look at the play with Reliance and and all of the big telecom, I think that is also a very interesting model to look forward to. Yes. This.
1: Yeah, and of course, th- that was all presaged, as we talked about in the book by M-Pesa, you know, in Africa. And this is the slight counterpoint to the blockchain piece is, you know, you know, we've been we've been sending money while, you know, everyone talks about blockchain, you know, revolutionizing the world. But, you know, M-Pesa was running on telco rails in 2004. So, um, you know, there's other ways to uh, bring about positive change uh without having to um put all of your eggs into the blockchain basket
0: so there you have it um the blockchain basket maybe that's what you can call it next time but thank you so much for spending <laughs> time with us today dan and you, uh, for all of you who are curious about the book you can go look for money hackers by daniel simon and thank you very much for listening in to another episode of one vision